Welcome back to the Agora, the podcast where we discuss anything and everything that has to do with Greece, but particularly political, geopolitical and economic issues. It's been a while since our last episode, so we're hoping to make up for lost time with this one. I'm Nick Malkoutsis, and I'm very glad to say that my co-host and the show's producer, Phoebe Fronista, is back with me. It's so good to be back. Hopefully, this episode's content will make up for us not being able to record for some time now, when a little bit of COVID, a little bit of work assignments, and a million other things got in the way. And we should point out, Phoebe, not only is this our first episode for a few weeks, and we apologize about that, but it's also the last in Series 3 of the Agora. That's right, folks. This is Episode 30 of this podcast series we began in the very early days of the pandemic, hoping to inform and enlighten our listeners with deep dives into issues related to Greek current affairs. Of course, when we began, we thought that COVID would be the one big challenge. But two years later, the landscape has changed so much, and not necessarily for the better. The pandemic is still out there, even if we're all pretending it's not, while we enjoy the Greek summer. But all eyes and all wallets are on the cost of living and energy crises, which show no signs of letting up. That's right. And both of these challenges you mentioned, Phoebe, are linked in one way or another to the major international development of the year, which is Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Who would have believed a couple of years ago when we were in a panic over how COVID would impact our lives, that the virus would soon be overshadowed by a war in Europe? But that's where we are. And like so many countries, Greece is feeling the impact of the fighting in Ukraine and the knock-on effects this is having on energy supplies, the global economy, and everything else that comes with such a conflict. In the second half of the show, Nick will be speaking to Wolfango Piccoli, the co-president and director of research at Deneo, the global consulting and advisory firm, about the various ways in which Greece is being affected by what's going on in Ukraine and what the picture could look like over the coming months. But before we get into the geopolitics and economics of the situation, let's start with those who are affected most by the upheaval, the Ukrainian people who have had to leave their homes to find safety in other European countries, including Greece, after Russian President Vladimir Putin sent troops into their country. More than 40,000 Ukrainian refugees have come to Greece since the invasion in February, and more than a quarter of those are children. We were so lucky to meet 32-year-old Kristina Kobliak, who came to Greece with her six-year-old daughter Anna and three-year-old son Yaroslav in March. Like so many Ukrainians in her position, Kristina has an emotional and gripping story to tell. And as we share it with you, we also want to thank her for taking the time to speak to us over the course of several weeks and share her thoughts. Uh, Phoebe, uh, Kristina had quite a physical and emotional journey over the last few months. 
and it's not over. Mm. She's actually back in Ukraine right now with the kids. They hadn't seen their dad in four months. And she, she had a big decision to make. I met Christina and Anna in a park near the seafront. Anna had brought her swimsuit along to play in the fountains with the other children while her mother and I talked. Sorry about the background music, by the way. It was a very high-tech park. Anna and her mom negotiated playing terms. And then Anna, with a huge grin, ran off to play. In February, just before the war started, Christina was already getting ready to leave Ukraine. But for good reasons. Her husband had gotten a job offer to go to Egypt, near the Red Sea. And the whole family was excited about this new adventure. I remember the, that morning when I wake up um, at uh, 4 o'clock in the morning and I feel... Um, and uh, my husband's phone ring, ring, ring every time. I lay down and uh, I don't want to go to the next to the window to see what's going on. <sighs> but uh, my mother called me from Greece and said, Christina, the war is beginning, you must do something. At first, Christina didn't want to believe it. But I don't understand. I said, woman, it's okay. This is not war. It's finished. Uh, one hour, no problem. But my husband said no. So after five days of sirens, scared children and no bomb shelter, the whole family caught a ride with friends to the Romanian border, a three-hour drive from their hometown, Ivano-Frankivsk. There were thousands of other refugees waiting at the border. I saw many, many women who stand with their children feeding um, breastfeeding with the milk and the first snow is falling and um, I remember it moment and I said Roman I love you very much hug them and I go I don't know <laughs> and she left not knowing when she would see her husband or country again Christina's mother drove from Athens to Romania to pick them up and since then she and every other Ukrainian have put their life on pause and are living a moment, as she calls it. What's going on? And uh, it's very hard to, for us to speak about it, to speak about our um, neighbors, because they left here. My uh, Many uh, of my um, friends stay in Ukraine, and every time I call them, they are cry, 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 because uh, they live now. Um, before 24 February, we planned. We have very huge plan for the years. But now we are living a moment, now. But the feeling that justice is on their side is what sustains them. Every people who live in Ukraine and not in Ukraine, we have um, one rule. When you go uh, to take a coffee, uh, donate to the Ukrainian army. When you go uh, at the pool, donate to the army. And every day we do small steps to our victory. And um, wherever you go, wherever you do, Every time you understand that um, uh, you take a place in this victory. Christina has tried to keep herself and her kids busy these last few months in Athens. 
Through the International Red Cross, she took a business class at Alba, an English-language university, and she was even able to send her kids to school. Her son to a Greek kindergarten, and Anna to a Ukrainian-language school three days a week. It used to be just a weekly language class, and now it's become a haven for the Ukrainian mothers and children that have arrived in Greece. But every night, for four months straight, Anna and Yaroslav asked for their father. And Christina missed him terribly. So she decided to go back. I know the bombs, the rockets, every time is falling down. I know where, where I go, but uh, I want to see my husband. I want to see, to understand what I must do the next step. Because I'm very, like, frustrated. I don't know um, if I'm good or not. Uh, what? Uh, yeah, we do the best for our children. But uh, like a um, husband... Uh, and um, a wife, it's it's not so good because uh, we are very, very far from each other and we must understand what we can do. Christina had two choices. Stay in Greece and try to make a life here or move back and be with her husband and take part in the defense of Ukraine. That day in the park, I felt she was leaning towards the second it was crystal clear that she longed not only for her old life, but she wanted to fight, to defend her country in whatever way. When she told me that it was going to be mandatory for women to join the army in October, she didn't seem frightened at all. And I know the Ukraine will win because um, we have a great nation. We, we help each other. Uh, and you see, we, want, um, we fight for freedom. We fight uh, for our culture who... Uh, 300 years was destroyed and uh, we fight to live in our territory. We fight for this and... Um, I... About a week after she arrived back home, I called her. Hi, Phoebe. Hi, Christina. How are you? Oh, I'm good. Thank you. Thank you. Don't sleep good because uh, Serena's in the morning and every time I'm afraid. Don't know what to expecting from day to day. So you have sirens in the morning and at night? Yes, yes. Um, and uh, I, 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 was, I was very happy, very, very. It, it was like, oh, I'm at home now. <laughs> And uh, my children saw uh, their father, and uh, they cry, uh, they hugging, they kisses, and we all together. I, I cried. I was excited. Many many emotions in my heart, and I am trembling. <laughs> I don't know. It's very hard. It's very hard for me to. Oh, oh my God! And... To tell about it, to live in it every day. Yeah. I must go back home because I want to see to feel it. What if I can if I can live here? But I saw it's not so good for the children, uh, physical and mental health. Yeah, I mean that's what I was going to ask you. Like, what have you decided with your husband? Do you think you'll come back to Greece so they go to school here, or do you think you will stay there with him? Uh, no, I think. 
think Fidoui uh, decided with my husband that uh, I go back to the Athens Mm-hmm. My children go to the schools from September, and uh, Yaro go to the kindergarten, and uh, I I want to go for work, uh, and it will be better for them because I don't afraid for for uh, for them. Yeah. Because they can play and they can uh, live uh, in a peace, but not from Serenas to Serenas. It's it's not normally. Yeah. No, it's not. Yeah. That was Christina, an aspiring yoga entrepreneur from Ukraine who found refuge for her and her children in Greece following the Russian invasion of her country earlier this year. Maybe I'll chat with her again when she's back in September. Well, hopefully it would be really interesting to see how she's doing and we wish her and her family all the best, of course. Now, let's look at the bigger picture by trying to identify the geopolitical and economic impact that the war in Ukraine has had on Greece. I called on Wolfango Piccoli from Teneo and his years of experience in political risk and intelligence to talk us through what marks the conflict has already left and in what ways it might continue to impact our corner of the world. Let's hear what Wolfango had to say. He joined us from London. So, Wolf, let's start off by discussing the the geopolitical aspects of a subject. Very soon after the war in Ukraine began, uh, the Greek Prime Minister, Kyriakos Mitsotakis, he took the decision to clearly condemn Russia's invasion, but also to send arms to Ukraine. And that created a bit of a stir within Greece because traditionally... Greece didn't take sides in armed conflicts, let alone provide uh, ammunition or arms or guns or whatever it may may be. Uh, and it, it had traditionally pursued this so-called um, multi-dimensional uh, foreign policy, which I guess is a euphemism for trying to be friends with everyone and not to get involved in anything that's true, too controversial. Uh, did this bold step by Mitsotakis have an impact on how Greece is viewed among its Western partners, particularly within uh, NATO? Um, I think it I think it was a bold move by Mitsotakis, um, even considering the rhetoric that he used to condemn the Russian invasion and also obviously the sending uh, the supply of weapons to Ukraine. Um, I think it helped to increase to improve the image uh, of Greece as a reliable partner, something that was already in the making, especially in terms of Greece and US, where we have seen a significant turnaround in terms of relation on all sorts of fronts. Um, and that I think the government should get credit for it, together with the former uh, US ambassador in, uh, in Athens. So this is part of the process. Um, so far, so good. 
the question for Greece, which is a question that I think applies to other countries, for example, like Italy, is whether this is sustainable over, over, over time, meaning that with the cost of the war becoming more evident to the average citizen, the average voter here, because both countries are facing election um, in, in the short term, uh, whether the government will be able uh, to withstand the potential pressure from people saying this was this war is costing lots of money, mm-hmm. it's time to rethink about it. It's, it's a huge question, but it's not just a question for Greece. Inevitably, Wolf, after those uh, early days, um, we started to see things through the the prism of Greek-Turkish relations. As you know very well, almost everything in Greece inevitably gets uh, looked at through that prism. Um, And there was this sense that that, that what seemed like a really united response, particularly from the EU to the Russian invasion, created this impression in Greece that it would perhaps mark a turning point in the way the West would view uh, what Athens sees as expansionist visions in the Aegean by Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. But we've gradually seen Erdogan adapt to the new situation. Instead of being on the back foot, he's right in the thick of things. He's acting as a mediator. He's uh, uh, making it difficult for new members to join NATO. In your view, how should Greece interpret where it stands with regards to its neighbour, especially as we've seen an intensification of the expansionist rhetoric from Erdogan and his national allies in recent weeks, also another country with elections coming up in in the short term? I think trying to outsmart Erdogan on the geopolitical front in the region is a foolish job, uh, basically, because... If we look at the, the the initial condition here, Turkey was on paper one of the biggest losers from this war. Mm-hmm. The highest amount of tourists coming into Turkey are from Russia. The third largest were actually the Ukrainians. Uh, Turkey is one of the biggest food importers from both countries. Um, so there were all sorts of challenges on paper for Turkey. But with the passing of the time, I think Erdogan has been able to turn it to his advantage. So... It's the only NATO country that is not applying sanctions against Russia. Not only that, we have seen inflow of Russian money, inflow of uh, Russians moving to Turkey to the the extent that in May, Russians were the largest buyers of real estate in Turkey. Mm -hmm. Last week, we heard about Rosatom, the the nuclear energy agency of the Russian government, parking a few billions into Turkey, into Turkey coffers as well. Putin and Erdogan are meeting on the 5th of uh, 5th of August in Sochi. And Turkey has also managed to get this grain deal done. And then very people, lots of people were skeptical, I include myself, uh, but they managed to pull uh, this out. Uh, so I don't think here much has changed um, in terms Turkey will is and will remain a difficult partner in the region. Um, election are coming in Turkey. Turkey is already in a like, campaign mode, even if elections are basically planned for May, June next year. And so we should expect Erdogan to continue using foreign policy to score uh, points back home. Now, an issue that is linked to both what's going on in Ukraine and the, the Greek-Turkish relations is energy. And Greece has 
been making some moves recently on the uh, energy front, expanding its capabilities to receive LNG gas in Alexandrupoli in the northeast of the country, moving forward with an, an interconnection between the Greek and Egyptian power grids and agreeing recently a similar deal with uh, Saudi Arabia. We've even seen some revival in the idea of the East Med gas pipeline although the the financial viability of the project uh, still remains doubtful. There is a discussion within Greece about the country positioning itself as an energy hub following the Ukraine war. Uh, Now, this is something that I've heard repeatedly in Greece over the past couple of decades, so maybe I, I, I take it with a pinch of salt, but do you think it's realistic as an idea, and do you see the potential for energy to be a game changer in the East Med?, either in terms of bringing countries closer together, which would obviously be an ideal scenario, or potentially driving them further apart? Um, the energy app story, as you said, I've heard it for this, uh, as well for the last 20 years about yeah. Turkey. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, starting from the, basically even the, the early days of the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, People like former President Ozal and former President Demirel were already talking about it. And still, we are far away from it. So I'm always a bit skeptical about it. I'm equally skeptical about the East Med pipeline. I thought it was always a pipe dream, mm-hmm. absent a deal with Turkey. Uh, leaving aside the issue of financing, which is obviously acute, there is a question into which kind of companies will get involved in this project if there is no agreement with Turkey knowing that Turkey could come in and disrupt it. And not to mention also about the the challenge of pulling something like this together. And also, this is something that will take years to build and will not help us facing the next winter, basically. Can energy become an area of cooperation? I think it already is, but and unfortunately, it's not much talked about. The gas that that Greece is getting is gas that is coming via Turkey. Uh, is Azeri gas that is coming from... And there, you know, we should be honest enough to say that Turkey has never used gas as a weapon, as a leverage against Greece. We have seen Turkey, you know, doing all sorts of uh, bad things, if we can put it in that way, but nobody, they never even hinted at using that. So in some ways... Uh, that is already happening. Unfortunately, it's not getting much attention. Hopefully, it might get a bit more attention, and that would help to get to create even more cooperation. Because there is no doubt, there is much more that two that two neighboring country can do together on the energy front. Okay, and Wolf, obviously, energy feeds very much into the economic uh, uh, picture and. Like its EU peers, Greece is experiencing a cost of living crisis, rising energy costs, and all the other elements that are coming with the current upheaval around the world. But the Greek government remains positive. It's pointing to a bumper tourism season, investment for major international firms like Microsoft, Google, and Pfizer, and of course, more money to come from the EU's COVID emergency fund, the RRF. There are some more optimistic forecasts, even for growth of up to 5% this year. Do you share in this optimism, or are you more guarded about the economic prospects in Greece? Um, I think it's very difficult to say, and I think it's not just about Greece. I think it's about general trying to you know, forecast here uh, growth, uh, 
um, across multiple countries after COVID. Um, we have seen, for example, even uh, earlier this week, the result of the uh, second quarter in Italy, which was um, on the positive side, surprising people. The same surprising people about Spain, where we have seen 1% of growth, and but Germany was the negative surprise there. So, um, and again, anyway, uh, I, I, I think I, I might be a bit more on the cautious side, maybe sticking closer to the to what the Bank of Greece is suggesting, a 3.8, something like that. Um, the question in Greece remains always the same, meaning where is this growth coming from? Is from the usual old-fashioned kind of sources. Um, obviously, it's great to have a fantastic tourism season, helps everybody, but uh, the question here is more about the long term, where the model um, is evolving or not, and I think there is still very early days. Yeah, I think I've been hearing about the the new economic model in Greece for as long as I've been hearing about the the idea of Greece being an energy hub. So, still a, still a work in progress. Um, as you know, the Greek government has dedicated billions of euros in COVID support, uh, and now energy and cost of living uh, relief measures uh, during the course of this year. And it appears that uh, the Prime Minister will announce more interventions uh, next month when he goes to the Thessaloniki International Fair. Some reports putting the figures at uh, an extra two billion over the autumn. Of course, uh, all this is happening perhaps with one eye on the elections, which now look like they're going to take place next year. We're not going to have early polls this year. Would you say that this assistance has had the desired impact? And speaking of next year, how do you see the government performing the fiscal tightening that's needed, especially given that it seems committed to producing a primary surplus next year as it tries to regain the trust of the markets and an investment-grade rating for Greece's sovereign debt? Um, on On the first question, I think if you look at the polls, you still see... New Democracy enjoying a very solid lead vis-à-vis the main opposition, Syriza. So the, the kind of 10 percentage point gap on average. Mm-hmm. Uh, so on one side, you can say that this kind of measure have helped the government to soften the blow to the citizen and in turn to the popularity of, of the party. But on the other hand, when you look at the poll still, when you ask people what are they concerned about, the cost of living is by far the number one issue. And the Absolutely. same applies to other countries. It's the same story in Italy, for example. Uh, so the issue is still there. Uh, inflation is biting. Uh, the war still has to come, in my view, uh, in terms of inflation and especially on the energy on the energy front. Obviously, it depends very much how cold the winter will be, and nobody knows about that. Um, so there is certainly more that will need to be done here to try to uh, ameliorate the situation of the especially low-income low income families. On the fiscal side, frankly, I'm not particularly worried. I think next year is far away. We don't know how tough the winter is going to be even for, and actually not even for, specifically for a country like Germany. I think here the weakest link is Germany. 
And therefore, if Germany goes through a tough winter, everybody will go through a tough winter on the economic frontier. And suddenly what were, you know, what looked like very stringent fiscal target, they might become a bit more relaxed. So I think it's still far too early to say, not to mention that we might be even facing a recession risk in the in Europe next year, which on one side could be a silver lining in terms of energy demand. But on the other way around, you know, it creates further problems in terms of reaching certain fiscal targets. So I think at that point, I will be more on the wait and see and take everything with a big pinch of salt, specifically also considering how fluid the situation is in Brussels at this point when we talk about the fiscal side of the story. Sure. Uh, and obviously, Europe is also trying to get its act together in terms of the the bond markets, we've seen a lot of turbulence over the last few months. And in the case of Greece, it went from experiencing its low, lowest ever yields last year uh, to the 10-year benchmark going above 4.5% at one point uh, this year. This, as you, as you understand, caused some alarm because skyrocketing yields were the trigger for the last Greek economic crisis, which uh, none of us uh, forgotten about yet, still fr- fresh in the memory. Could you explain why we shouldn't be too alarmed about borrowing, borrowing rates at this point and tell us what you make of the European Central Bank's new anti-fragmentation tool, which is aimed at restoring some kind of calm to the bond markets, the as it's called, the trans, transmission protection instrument? Um, maybe I should just use kind of quote the Prime Minister of Greece, Mr. Takis, that in a recent CNN interview say, look at Italy. So, you know, <laughs> look at Italy and you will feel better in Greece. <laughs> uh, more seriously, I don't think uh, neither in Greece nor in Italy there is a significant risk of a new sovereign debt crisis. And in Greece, in the Greece case is even uh, uh, a more kind of uh, more convincing position meaning looking at the maturities first, around 20 years, Italy is seven on average, uh, if you want to make a comparison. Most importantly, most of the Greek debt is in the hands of the public sector, the official sector at this point. Um, but there is still a significant amount of reserve funds available. So it's more the risk for the real economy, basically uh, money becoming, uh, lending becoming more expensive. Uh, borrowing, excuse me, becoming more expensive for companies and households. That could be a risk. Um, that is something to keep an eye on. Um, on the other way around, it would be good for the Greek banks. Usually in this kind of situation, high inflation, low interest rates is good for banks. I've seen it in Turkey now. Mm-hmm. Banks are making a killing. While inflation is 80%, interest rates are of 14 but the banks are lending at higher rates and they're making it a really lot of money. So it's, I think it's more of a challenge for the real economy. That they As for the TPI, I think it's just like the OMT. It's one of those tools that you announce, you make a big splash in the news, to try to create a sort of deterrent effect and you hope that you will never be used, uh, basically. And let's, let's remember, the first you know, port of call year, if something gets a bit uh, edgy on the bond market, will be the pepper investment, um, which is already being used. Um, the, the TIP, I think, is, uh, is basically to put the market on notice that the ECB is willing to intervene. But then if you start looking at the details, there are still lots of parts that remains 
um, unclear about it. And I think in Frankfurt, everybody's hoping that it will never be basically deployed. Okay, Wilfred, to finish off our discussion, let's return to the issue of energy, which is such a vital part of what's going on in Ukraine at the moment. When Russia invaded its neighbor earlier this year, Greece was in this strange position where it was gradually reducing its reliance on Russian natural gas. It had actually fallen below a 40% market share before the conflict began. But at the same time, it was increasing its reliance on other forms of gas to act as a transition fuel that would allow a move away from the emissions-heavy lignite, which Greece has, mines itself, a form of coal here, and covering the country's energy needs until more power could be generated from renewable sources. So far, Greece's plan for dealing with the fallout of Russian sanctions has been to diversify its gas supplies and use coal and oil as stopgaps. Renewables still seem to be a, a work in progress amid, amid the usual arguments about licensing and so on. Do you feel Greece's plan is robust enough or does it need, need more attention? Uh, Greece is trying is doing what everybody else is trying to do. Um, so, uh, you know, we've seen similar kind of um, moves uh, in other countries where, you know, things that were not considered as green, suddenly they become green. And you re- including the reopening of coal facilities and so on. I think there are some challenges. First of all, Greece doesn't have a natural gas storage facilities. I've seen in the news about uh, the idea of trying to ask Italy to do storage for Greece. Uh, Difficult to say whether that could fly back home in Italy, uh, meaning, well, first of all, we have a government, uh, uh, an interim government until Mm -hmm. the 25th of September. There is Italy, certainly, my view, is in a worse position than Greece on the energy front. So what is going to be the willingness and ability to meet this potential Greek request, I think, is a huge question mark. Even increasing the lignite production is challenging. You know, once you shut down facilities to reopen them, it's not that easy. It requires investment. It requires the right people, the kind of skills that maybe are gone. So it's a bit of a challenge uh, here. I think is for 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 Greece, like everywhere else in Europe, is going to be um, a tough winter. Um, Greece, I don't think, is in the worst spot here, uh, but very much like everywhere else, will depend on uh, on how cold it's going to be and how long this winter is going to be. It's you know it's uh, it's very difficult to forecast. Uh, these kind of issues, uh, given the variable of, of the weather. Remember last winter in the UK, a minister was asked whether we were going to face energy shortages in the winter, and they replied, let's hope for a, not a very cold winter and a very windy winter, because <laughs> the UK has got a huge wind potential. It wasn't very windy last year. Let's see about this year. Mm-hmm. Um on the European level, Greece has proposed an alternative to the voluntary reductions of gas consumption over the winter, which is obviously one way that the EU is trying to address the, the problems that you raised. Uh, Greece's proposal would see industrial energy users being compensated to reduce their consumption. So far, the idea seems to have uh, not really received much support. Do you think it has any legs? 
Um, first, I will say that the EU plan for the 15% reduction will not fly. Uh, we have seen the plan is already full of holes because of all the exemptions uh, given. Uh, it requires a huge amount of work. So I'm very skeptical about that plan actually working. I think what, what is interesting for me is what is missing still in lots of European countries is uh, public information campaigns to try to prepare the public for what is coming and trying to educate the public on how energy can be saved. And that is, actually, I know we have seen some countries moving on the front, France, for example, uh, nothing about this in Italy so far, which is kind of uh, uh, concerning. Uh, so, but that plan will not work. As for the Greek proposal, I don't think it's going to fly. Um, it's, uh, you know, in some ways, it's kind of easy for Greece to suggest something like that because you don't have heavy industries very energy dependent. Uh, um, so it's not Germany or it's not the north of Italy. Uh, secondly, and more fundamentally, I think there will be a concern in Brussels, but most likely in places like Nether the Netherlands, like Germany, that these kind of mechanisms are distorting the, mar- distorting the markets. Um, like we've seen with the gas, the idea also, the Italian idea of a gas, of a cap on gas prices, the, the pull, the pushback from the Netherlands, from the Nordic generally, but the Netherlands was leading there, was that these are mechanisms that are distorting the market. So yep. I'm, I'm very skeptical about this idea um, basically taking off. On the other way around, I have to say, it's interesting to see that the government has been uh, uh, very very engaged on this kind of front in Greece. Lots of proposals are coming through, which is a welcome change. Um, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, is one way to try to have influence on the, um, uh, the policy making in Brussels. Even if the proposal is not accepted, maybe there is a trade-off that can be done on something else. So in that sense, I think it's still a positive to see that Athens remains committed and able to put uh, together plans, basically. Okay, Wolf, great to finish on that constructive note. Thanks very much. We've covered a lot of ground. Thank you for your insight on this wider range of uh, really pressing topics that aren't going to go away anytime soon. That was Wolfango Piccoli the co-president and director of research at Deneo, speaking to Nick about Greece and the impact of the Ukraine war. And as you heard, Phoebe, there are still some really challenging times ahead for Greece and not just Greece. Whether you're looking at energy or the all-round global economic environment, which is not great, to be honest, it's a long and bumpy road ahead, unfortunately. Yeah, it's it's not the most optimistic note on which to end this third series of the Agora, yeah. but... We've been pretty clear from the start, I think, that we're here to bring you the unvarnished truth, even if it is uncomfortable at times. Just telling it like it is, Phoebe. Before we wrap this up, just one last request. Please, guys, follow us, rate us on the platforms where you can find us, Spotify, Apple, Google, and Acast. Keep that support and feedback coming. We love it. We do. And that just leaves us to wish you a pleasant and restful summer or what's left of it so you can return to tackle the challenges of the coming months head-on and full of energy. Thanks for listening during this season and putting up with our scheduling difficulties. It really is much appreciated. Bye-bye for now. See you for Season 4. 
coming soon. Bye-bye. Thank you.